Today's episode of The Mourner's Bench is brought to you by Theolab Media. Theolab is a podcast and media network that connects unlikely conversation partners to illuminate what's possible when we take the time to unlearn fear, embrace difference, and live with courage. To learn more, visit theolabmedia.com. What is up, good people? Welcome back to the Mourners Bench. I'm Brandon Thomas. And I'm KT Ricks. And today we are thrilled to share with you our first ever listener view. Listener views are interviews or conversations with people like you who listen to the Mourners Bench on a regular basis. Our hope is that these listener views will present you with an opportunity to get to know folks who are part of the Mourners Bench and Theolab Media communities. But before we get into listener views, Katie's going to hit you with a few announcements. Yeah, as you know, each week our goal is to bring you high-quality digital content that engages the questions that shape our lives. If you are enjoying what you hear on the Mourner's Bench and you want to support the upcoming work of Theolab Media, please consider visiting patreon.com forward slash Theolab Media to begin making a monthly contribution. You can give us as little as $5 per month or up to $1,000 per month if you're feeling really generous. No matter the giving level, you'll get access to the exclusive Mourner's Bench and Theolab media content by donating. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash Theolab media to contribute. If you're interested in keeping up with what we're doing at Theolab Media, head on over to our website at theolabmedia.com where you can sign up for our newsletter, which is going to start this month. We'll keep you up to date on all kinds of information, who our guests are, and especially about upcoming shows. One of those shows starts this March. Theolab Media is launching a new podcast called Healing Jephthah's Daughter. Reverend Dr. Lisa Weaver is going to bring it on that show. It is fantastic. I'm so excited about that podcast. This podcast is going to be an exploration of family systems and the childhood traumas that women and girls experience at the hands of their fathers or guardians. And Lisa will use a combination of family systems theory, biblical criticism, and storytelling to lead listeners on a journey toward freedom, healing, and wholeness. It is going to be fabulous. I hope y'all will join us for that. You can visit our website again to find out more information about that. And you may hear Lisa Weaver on the Mourner's Bench here before long to get a little taste of what you might experience on Healing Jephthah's Daughters. I am so excited that she's willing to come on and give us a preview. Me as well. So I think that's it, right, Katie? Yes. All right. Well, let's get into it. So as I mentioned in the intro, we are excited about our first ever listener view. Many of you listened to the year-end altar call where we got to hear from you directly, your bench nominees, if you will. So that spurred the idea to have conversations with listeners who are subject matter experts in their own right and who all listen and engage the podcast as well. We don't know everything and we don't claim to, but we do have listeners listeners who know a lot of things and are part of our community of knowledge and knowing. So we are thrilled to welcome Dr. Elizabeth Albright. We got to be formal with the first one, Dr. Elizabeth Albright. <laughs> but we'll be calling her either Betsy or Bets today, whichever one rolls off our tongue. And we might do a little Queen Elizabeth or something. I don't know, whatever we feel like. <laughs> please, please, Queen Elizabeth. <laughs> I've watched the crowd. <laughs> your, your grace. <laughs> uh, Betsy's a professor at Duke University and her research centers on how policies and decisions are made in response to extreme climatic events. 
Betsy is interested in collaborative decision-making processes, particularly in the realm of water resource management. She is also the recipient of two major grants, one from the National Science Foundation and the other um, is a Fulbright Award So uh, to support her research and scholarship. But she's smart. She's real smart, she's y'all. Smart. She try, she's going to try to play small, but she's smart. Uh, <laughs> uh, prior to completing her doctoral work and working in the academy, Betsy worked for the state of North Carolina. I think that's your state, Katie. Yes, it is. And she did My work. Adopted state. Your what state? Adopted state. Okay. Wisconsin is home. Wait, North Carolina is second home. Wisconsin is home. Right. Okay. I right. Hear you. <laughs> but Betsy worked in North Carolina in water resource management, and I could read more about her bio and all the wonderful things she's doing. But instead, let's just hear directly from Betsy. So, uh, Betsy, welcome to the Mourners Bench. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Brandon. Thank you, KT. I'm thrilled to be here. So thank you for having me on. How did you get connected with the Mourners Bench? I'm curious. I saw a link on Facebook, I believe, and I'm super interested in questions about theology and God and especially humans' relationship to the earth and how different theological religious traditions kind of think about uh, the relationship between humans and the earth. And, you know, I'm on break and I'm bored. <laughs> so you have time to listen to podcasts. We have nothing better to do than to listen to Brandon, KT, Sam, and Malcolm talk about things on podcasts because there's a pandemic. <laughs> Tell me more about your research in your own terms. What I study, or and I often use we because I collaborate with lots of different folks. So what, what we study, whether that's students or other faculty elsewhere or communities on the ground, we look at how communities who have been affected by what we call extreme climatic events. And so that's either like floods or hurricanes, wildfires, how they recover. And not just that immediate, you know, week after a disaster, but long-term. We followed seven communities in Colorado for three years after a major flood, after towns were devastated. And we just submitted our uh, manuscript for our book. And so I think, and this work was with Desiree Crow in Colorado. So I'm thrilled to to have that out. When I'm not listening to your podcast, I was like working on the book. <laughs> I mean, so this is kind of also weird to hear someone who's an academic scholar, researcher, talk about doing work in community. I mean, I, th- I mm-hmm. oftentimes think about researchers and um, academic types as those who are very interested in their own ideas, their own concepts, and doing that in ways that can be narrow and kind of selfish, right? I want to know the thing um, and produce the thing that no one else has said before or the thing that only five other humans can understand. <laughs> but it sounds like your research is very intentionally different How did you come to do research in that way and why? To be honest, we haven't completely figured it out, right? Because there's the academic side of incentives where the incentive structure is very much publish or perish, get that new idea, right? Get it in a journal and have seven other people who read that journal read your article, right? And that's not particularly fulfilling for me. You know, I want to see our work and work broadly, you know, be meaningful in a real actionable way. And so for one of the collaborations, I work with a woman named Catherine Coleman Flowers. She runs a environmental organization in rural, predominantly African-American community uh, in Alabama, Lowndes County, Alabama, who's been struggling with access to infrastructure, right? This systemic century-long history of structural racism, marginalization, poverty, Etc. So it's really important for me that that work improves the lives 
and empowers communities in Alabama and not just goes into a, a journal somewhere. Most excitedly, Catherine or Ms. Flowers was just awarded a MacArthur Genius Award for her work, which I think is is fantastic. She's done an amazing job shedding light on the struggles of the forgotten communities of Alabama, which is critical. And I think that's a place where we can help. I worry very much in these situations where a white or historically white institution helicopters into a community, right? And that is problematic and can just kind of reinvent the same structural issues of the past. And that's what we don't want to happen or I don't want to happen, but it's very much a struggle because I'm working or we're working within the confines of the Academy of Duke. Um, and so managing that relationship through through time. So tell me like when and how you developed an interest in environmental studies. Back when I was a kid, um, I would go to um, who I call or consider my grandparents. They're not my actual grandparents, but they're my adopted grandparents. And they had a fascination with, with nature and a desire and kind of driving need to, to protect it. In their yard, they had walnut trees. We would collect the walnuts and break them, and I would get all dirty and I, you know messy, and I felt me in that situation. And this kind of respect and honoring the environment. They had persimmon trees. We would pick the persimmons and make persimmon pudding. They taught me all about the different rocks and we would polish rocks. They taught me how to fish. You know, it wasn't the ocean or the snowy white peaks of Colorado. It was their home in a, you know, medium, small sized town in Southern Indiana, but it was magical to me. I could be myself in that, in that place. I mean, when I hear that, I think about vocation and about the ways that like you come alive and, and that that's where you found yourself, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Tell me where we are right now as it relates to climate change. Have we reached the point of no return or have we changed our bar, our standards or what? where are we? And, you know, I think we can think about it over a long time frame. So we've been tracking, say, global temperatures for over 140 years. And by we, I mean the scientific community, not me personally. <laughs> you and all alone by yourself have been tracking this. <laughs> for 140 for years. For 140 years. 140 years. <laughs> I mean, you're impressive, but wow. <laughs> this whole reincarnation thing I got down. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, the last decade from 2010 on has been the hottest on record. The hottest five years over that 140 years have been the last five years. Um, so I'm concerned, you know, are we at a place of no return? I, I don't like to frame it that way, right? Because it's not a, is there climate change or not? It's degrees. And so anything we can do going forward will, will lead to a better future for future generations. Am I worried? Yes, very much so. So what are some of the things that have created these conditions? I hear a lot of sometimes conflicting stories. I mean, as KT kind of outlined, we have this point of no return that we're not going to lean into today um, or in the future, per your advice. But there's there there was these there were these narratives about there we can't reach you know get beyond this threshold, and then it's like actually it's this threshold, and then people come back and they say neither of these thresholds are right. We're dangerously close to <laughs> uh, doing something that's horrible, and. Then you also hear recycle, don't recycle, or you hear all these right. plastic bottles end up in the landfill, use something that's reusable. Like, what are the things that we have done as humans 
um, and perhaps other natural causes that have led to the place where we are right now. Underlying that, I think, and maybe this is putting my own terms to your question is like who is responsible or what are the responsible actions and it's hotly debated I would say in the in the climate circles should we be blaming um, oil companies or should we be blaming the general public should we be blaming developing countries versus developed countries right and that very much underlies some of the struggles and in my mind there's no simple answer to that you have people of wealth for example, who have consumption patterns that have led to some of the issues. Do I blame an individual who moves out to the exurbs because that's the house that they can afford and there's no public transportation for them to take and they have to drive their inefficient older car to get to work? Not at all. I'm much more of a kind of systems thinker in that we are being incentivized or disincentivized to act in different ways. And there's a number of drivers in that kind of system. You know, I think in the 80s, 90s, and even today, fossil fuel industries, a set of oil companies played a big part in some of the climate change isn't real narrative going on in their advertising campaigns. They give money to many of our elected officials. So they bend their agenda towards the desires of the oil companies. And so the responsibility is widespread. I do place responsibility on developed versus developing countries. We have a history of fossil fuels and there's huge questions of equity and who's responsible for reducing in the future. And so it's a complex question. Do I think Americans, and by Americans I'm talking primarily Americans of wealth, do we need to to think about our values and how we live our, our lives? Yes. Is that Is that going to get us where we need to go? No, there needs to be systemic change as well. How do we get engaged in the work that's more systemic? So where are places we can tap in? I'm very much think local first. Know who your city council members are. Go to, if you're able, you know, to their meetings or, you know, I think more meetings now are on Zoom. Tap in if you, you know, if you have access to the internet. Because many of climate-related policies come down to access to public transportation, land use planning, zoning. So thinking about those issues very locally. And then, like, stepping up. What's North Carolina or what's Georgia doing? How are my representatives voting? You know, you see some polls that say, oh, people care about the climate. But then you ask them, you know, what are your top 10 issues that you care about? Climate typically isn't at the top, right? And so I think we need to think about climate um, and raise it on the political agenda. You know, we can't just think about climate once Hurricane Katrina hits or once Hurricane Florence hits. And I think underlying all of that, we really need to think through an equity lens and through a systemic racism, marginalization lens as well, because it's oftentimes communities of color, indigenous communities, First Nations that are being more impacted. What I've appreciated about how you've spoken about this is you've done it in broad terms. Oftentimes, uh, friends of mine who are passionate about climate can talk about it in a way that really is narrow, but it really is. I think all justice concerns are intersectional. Mm -hmm. 
you know, to, so to have the concern for the person who has no other choice other than to drive X car because it's the car, the only car they have, they can't afford a new one. And it's been in their family for years, for generations right. in some instances. And it's the least fuel efficient car, but it's the vehicle that they have to get back and forth to and from the work that pays them below a living wage, right? I mean, so right. would you say that it's becoming the standard in environmental research, science, and activism to think about it in intersectional terms? How does our concern about the planet also impact our concerns and commitments to racial justice? How do our concerns about the environment also impact our commitments to gender and sexuality, justice and activism as well? No, that isn't the historic roots of the environmental movement. The environmental movement in a classic how a lot of people think of the environmental movement in the 70s was often thought of and was kind of an elite, white, wealthy movement. And at the same time, we see communities of color, kind of local groups coming together in an environmental justice movement. And I think over the past several years and even in this past year, people are thinking more about the blending of these two movements potentially and more intersectional work on the environment. And it hasn't been smooth. It hasn't been easy, but it is needed. What are some of the distinctions between these two groups? I mean, aside from the fact of it being white, wealthy, at least historically and stereotypically, and people of color, lower income perhaps in some instances. What are the other distinctions about the things for which each demographic is advocating? I mean, it's hard to speak in, in broad in broad terms without losing some of the nuance. But I think if you were to think historically, the kind of more national movement often thought of the environment as kind of a protection, preservation, maybe natural landscape preservation, ecosystem preservation, species preservation. And oftentimes I think of environmental, and again, this is wide swaths. So environmental justice communities often think of proximity to pollutants and the concentrated animal feedlot operation that's polluting next door and it smells in our community or it's the placement of landfills. The environmental justice movement initially dealt a lot with placement of, of landfills. Now we're seeing some integration in terms of there's now in environmental justice communities more focus on green issues, access to parks in nature in communities of color. And so, you know, it's not all you know, brown, when I think of brown, I think of um, pollution and brown environmental issues. Um, And brown is in the pollution, brown, not race. Right, 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 right. Um, (laughs) Driving environmental justice, but that's widening as well. So Betsy, who is your favorite co-conspirator in, uh, as it relates to environmental justice? I mentioned Miss Catherine Coleman Flowers in Lowndes County, and I would want to give a shout out to a woman, Pamela Rush, who I worked with also in Lowndes County, Alabama. African-American women were approximately the same age, and we developed a survey together to, to get a sense of what community members in Lowndes County are struggling with in terms of access to water, access to sewage treatment. And we designed the survey and she, along with several others, went out and collected the information from residents. And that's really provided a a clear window in in some of the structural challenges that Lowndes County faces. And unfortunately, in July of this year, Pamela Rush uh, passed away from COVID, Mm -hmm. which 
devastating for Lowndes, for Pamela's family. Just an awful situation. And and really, and when I think about it, you know, did she die of COVID or did she die from kind of the structural inequities that she fought so hard against? And not only did she work with us on the survey, she went to D.C. She testified in front of Congress on these issues, really brought awareness to the fact that when many families in Lowndes County flush their toilet, the the water, the sewage, the shit goes into their yeah. yards. Yeah. As you were talking, I was reminded about Flint, Michigan in 2014 and the water crisis there. We've come to a place where Flint still doesn't have clean water and even saying that has become a catchphrase of sorts, right? Like that's a, mm-hmm. a I hear it in sermons where preachers will call back to that. And as I'm listening to you speak, I think what I'm realizing and hearing and being reminded of is access to clean water is a national issue. It's a global issue. Yes. I think that's such an important point to drive home because oftentimes when we talk about climate change, I think the primary thing that I hear people talking about, and perhaps this falls into that sort of white, wealthy, protect the planet sort of conversation is about global warming. How can we stop the forest fires in California from burning down the million dollar homes? How can we um, protect certain demographics of people? And there's even um, some privilege in how we talk about environmental justice. And when we bring it down to water and thinking about how many folks don't have access to that, um, that brings it home in a very different kind of way. In what ways does that conversation open up? If we begin to have a conversation about access to clean water, what are the ripple effects of that conversation as it relates to the climate conversation? And number one, I think, is you know when people hear about water, access to water, sewer, everyone can relate to that to some extent. Everyone needs water. Can they relate to not being able to flush their toilet without affecting their yard? No. Right. Yes, most people in America, they would be aghast at, at what's happening in Lowndes. Right? And that's one thing that I really kind of honor Catherine as well as Pamela on raising these issues into a more nationalized dialogue. In terms of climate, I think one of the biggest challenges is people think of climate and you don't see climate in your everyday necessarily. Or maybe you do. It's, it's warm in December. I like warm weather. Right? It's hard to think about or to see. Whereas... Um, access to water, water, you know, is is visual and easy to see. And so, you know, thinking about the nexus of water and climate, I often think of climate change as as the metaphor of of steroids, right? You can't blame one storm per se on climate change, but if the climate system is pumped up on steroids, the chance of hitting a home run is a lot greater, right? And then linking that back to people's everyday experience and saying, okay, do we want bigger storms? Are we ready for this this new reality that we're living? And then thinking about people whose infrastructure is already, even if you remove climate change from the picture, inadequate, failing, historically so, and thinking we need, you know, reinvestment. We need to really think about developing infrastructure that addresses the structural inequities that have persisted for centuries and then thinking about that with climate change on top. It's overwhelming 
to think about all of the challenges. And I'm saying that as a white, privileged person sitting in a nice office, well, sort of mid-painting office in Durham, North Carolina. I'm hopeful, and that's probably a strong word. I really think that COVID has, if there's anything positive to come out of it, and I'm really hesitant to say anything positive when so many people have died and families have been devastated, but I think it has further shown the light on the inequities that we have in the U.S. and how black and brown folks are being disproportionately impacted. That's not by chance. And so I see, you know, the same folks that are being affected by COVID are affected by inadequate infrastructure and that's, you know, access to food. All of that is tied together. And I'm hopeful that we can really start thinking in this intersectionality way to address all of this, right? And climate just magnifies everything. All right, hold that thought. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. We have heard rumors that you have done TikTok, claymation, all kinds of stuff. Tell us how this started up. Teaching statistics and quantitative classes online is a struggle, right? And so I knew I needed to think about it differently. And part of it, you need to, to reach students where they're at, right? And so I love the central limit theorem, right? Students don't love that, but if I can make a 15-second set-it-to-music visualization that moves, maybe they'll learn to love it, too. So what's your handle so we can follow you on TikTok? I'm not sure what my TikTok handle is. Well, we're going to find it and put it in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> your follower count is going up. <laughs> I don't know what you saw on Facebook, but I remember like in April and May when we weren't completely and totally exhausted from the pandemic, there were all these poems and pictures and talking about how the earth is healing and there is a- Dolphins are swimming. (laughs) Like gay dolphins were swimming. Like (laughs) they had like rainbow colored dolphins. And I was like, okay, great. Like we've been fucking up the planet for the last- like 200 years and now who three months and dolphins are gay like <laughs> um so I, I think is that real or, or or is there work that's necessary to assess what habits we cultivated or were forced to live into as a result of the pandemic and then figure out how to extend those beyond a time of crisis has the air gotten better yes are dolphins swimming in venice i think that picture was contested i'm not that might be a fake one i'm not sure and that that kind of narrative also bothered me to some extent like oh people are dying but you know look how pretty it is now, which I think is, is problematic. But it, what it signaled to me is, yes, because of the pandemic, you know, we've reduced emissions, but how much further do we need to go? And we have done so much in terms of transportation being dampened, being, you know, people working from home that we were like, wow, that's if us all staying at home isn't really getting to where we need to be, then... We really need to think about how are we going to get there. So one of the biggest things in the Democratic debates, at least, was this Green New Deal, right? You had some climate mm-hmm. activists who partnered with AOC and other progressive liberal politicians to espouse this new vision, this Green New Deal. If if Bernie Sanders was elected, we were going to have a Green New Deal. And I think, I don't know if it's changed since then, but I know that it's kind of taken a back seat because that was a hot button topic for 
Joe Biden trying to appeal to both sides of the aisle. So I think the first half of it was talking about the problem as they as we see it and also identifying the challenges to overcoming that problem. If we pull out of fossil fuels, that not only means that corporations are going to lose money, that also means that poor folks, black folks, brown folks are going to lose their jobs. And then the second half of the Green New Deal, if I remember correctly, was talking about um, in order to mitigate that sort of um, loss on a wide basis, here's our commitment to restructuring the economy, not not in a manner that allows corporations and the 1% to continue to maintain and gain all the profits, but in a way that really does also redistribute the wealth in the country. One, have I understood it correctly? And two, is that the kind of legislation and plan that we need in order to get to the place of making a drastic enough impact as it relates to the climate? First of all, yeah, I think you're, you're spot on on what the Green New Deal is. I also think it's important to think of the Green New Deal as a framework and not specific legislation that's implementable right now. In the spring, I teach U.S. environmental policy and I line up lots of different pieces of legislation and Green New Deal being one. And it's it's more overarching, kind of setting goals, thinking about kind of systemic problems that we need to address. Unfortunately, I think the... The language or the term Green New Deal has been politicized and I don't see, quote unquote, a Green New Deal, given our current elective bodies and and how they're situated, getting that passed. Now, will we make progress? I think yes, but it's going to take bipartisan support and compromise to get there. And so that may be President Biden coming in and not pushing forth climate legislation, but putting forward an infrastructure package that has climate components, that has access to green jobs, and helps deal with some of the inequities of access to infrastructure that we've been talking about. Does it echo some of what is in the Green New Deal? Very much so. Does it use the language and the terminology of the Green New Deal? Probably not. We're not there in terms of, of Congress and moving that forward. Right. Which just shows again that, that it's all politicized, right? That, that, that instead of actually making change that's beneficial to everybody, they're going to try to politicize it. Earlier you said that thinking locally, are there, there are things that states can do even more local to counties, cities, especially here in Atlanta where we've got emissions gases everywhere. Are there ways that legislation can be developed here or put into effect here? Yeah, I mean, many states have what are called renewable portfolio standards, and that's like requiring utility companies to use a certain percentage of their energy to be from renewable sources, and many states have those. I don't know specifically if Georgia does, and they're of varying strictness. Uh, You know, I would like to see, and I think this could sell for folks who are more conservative than I am, you know, more entrepreneurship supported in the development of of renewables, more emphasis on renewable energy focused jobs. You know, I think the politicization of climate change has, you know, over the past two decades doesn't need need to be that way. You can attack climate change from a more kind of left AOC perspective or a more kind of right kind of developing entrepreneurship perspective. And I think if we can get folks in Congress to agree that there's a problem with climate change, that that would be a huge step forward. What can people do is reach out to their representatives and and vote 
according to their values and thinking about what these issues mean and thinking about climate change and, and getting it on the political agenda. Yeah. And that could be at the state level, that could be, you know, at the at the federal level, that could be at the local level. Now there's some, you know, North Carolina we've been struggling a bit with tension between localities and our state general assembly and the general assembly putting up i don't know chokehold to some extent on localities and what can they do to protect the environment right and so there's some kind of debate back and forth of about what level of government should should be acting on this my take is any and all the sooner the better you know people ask you know friends ask me you know is it more important to cut my own emissions or to put my energies into supporting a campaign that I know supports a more just climate future. And I don't see it as an either or. Some folks will argue one way, some folks will argue the other. I think both. Especially if you have the means to cut your own emissions. Let's break it down even further. So does that mean I'm trying to become a one-car household? Does that mean I'm trying to walk and uh, take you know take pedestrian routes where possible biking or as are those t- practical ways to cut emissions yeah those are practical ways to cut emissions i think air travel is a huge component so if you were going to fly say for work to a conference maybe see and encourage the conference to have a zoom conference right and so you don't need to fly across the country for a two-day day conference that that would really that that would really help even better would be okay if, if you really you know if you need to fly to the conference and your work wants you to go encourage your place of employment to offset flights there's an impact of of me flying to california are you willing to make up for that impact um, so I think, you know, not only putting pressure on government, but putting pressure on where you work. So that's me putting pressure on, on Duke, for example, to think about where are their investments? You know, are they investing their endowment in fossil fuels? Right. And so trying to put pressure and that is, gets to more of the systemic thing. But, you know, personally, I think one thing right now is, um, a lot of people are getting things shipped to them. Like for me, I need some Sharpie markers. Go to Amazon, get driven in, you know, 24 hours, flown to me some, you know, stupid Sharpie pens, right? What was the carbon footprint of those Sharpie pens? Did I really need those Sharpie pens to write, you know, something on an ornament to give to somebody? Maybe not, you know? And so thinking about just individual decisions. But again, I also think we need to think about us and... In the system in which we sit, and what are the incentive, you know, incentives to act one way or the other? But I, I would also love to see just a questioning of values in America and getting. I think we are have become, and again, this is broad sweeping, um, more consumers than we have citizens. And by citizens, I don't mean immigration and, and paperwork citizens, but you know, active. In civil society, it seems like we've become much more engaged in the consumption process and shopping and accumulation than we have in engaging with our neighbors and our communities. And I would love to see a shift there. I don't think there's legislation that can move that. I think places of worship can help with that. I think, you know, you look at 
what communities recover most strongly from disasters, and it's communities that have strong social networks, whether rich or poor. And so I really think we need to get back to that as a country. Uh, that, that was a can of worms maybe you didn't intend to open, but <laughs> communities that have strong social networks are those that recover best from natural disasters. Is that what, that I hear that mm-hmm. right? So, so can you give me an example of a community that, what, that you would identify as having a strong social network? I mean, a very um, sort of on the ground level, like maybe a community that you've encountered and worked with. All right, so one community um, out of the seven, it was a small community in Colorado, devastated. Their downtown was at the confluence of two rivers, and the two rivers just blew out downtown. Because they were a small community, they didn't have a whole lot of resources in terms of government. And so they relied and they formed community task forces, like a community task force for the library, a community task force for park redevelopment, a community task force for affordable housing. And because it's a small community, everyone knew each other um, and they were able to build off the ties and the levels of trust that they already already had. And so that's that's one example that comes to mind. The work that really kind of studies this is Dan Aldrich's work, who studied a lot in Japan after disasters. I think what's interesting, I mean, you mentioned places of worship, but these strong social networks in this town in Colorado probably transcends their religious communities. And I think that Christians specifically, we tend to think that we have the stronghold on that, like we can create communities. But really, this is something that has to go more broadly and actually outside of communities of worship because there are so many folks who are not engaged in worship or engaged in worship differently. And so that's one of the things that we've wrestled with among the four of us really is this, how do we create that kind of structure Mm -hmm. when it's outside of the religious community? Yeah, and the, the thing that I found, you know, really interesting in, in our Colorado case is each community in our interviews with mayors afterwards pointed to faith-based organizations as critical in recovery. Um, but each community pointed to a different faith-based organization. Mm-hmm. Boulder, I think they mentioned the Buddhists. You know, in Greeley, it was a more evangelical kind of conservative Christian, you know, so it's really context dependent. Um, and I think it's really critical for interfaith collaboration. Although that's tricky because that doesn't necessarily include folks without faith. I always include people without faith and interfaith because I basically, <laughs> most days I'm like, I don't believe in any of this crap. <laughs> you know, I think it's super interesting if you look at the post-disaster re- recovery world after Hurricane Dorian happened in North Carolina. I went down to Ocracoke to help. And this was work-related, but it was more because I spent a good chunk of my summers down there and I wanted to help out. You know, but you had the Baptist men running the the feeding group and then the Methodists rebuilding homes. And there's a a really strong presence of of faith-based organizations, which was good to see. On the other hand, you look at the data and you see, you know, you see these groups really active in post-disaster recovery, but then you look at kind of who quote unquote believes in climate change and white evangelical um, Christians are the lowest scoring in their kind of belief that humans are contributing to climate change. And so on one hand, you have folks, you know, 
faith-based, you know, belonging to faith-based organizations who are actively recovering from these climate-driven disasters. On the other hand, you know, there, there seems to be something driving kind of a lower-level belief in climate change, and I, that's something that I, I grapple with. I just don't get how people can actually deny that climate change is real anymore. I mean, like, I think it was also impressive to me that I kind of follow the progress of the COVID-19 bill at the end of 2020, but I didn't realize that it had so many sort of climate relief initiatives buried in there. And it's interesting. I mean, it almost feels like it's solely tactical, right? We want to be climate deniers at a tactical level. And there's this failure on the part of Republican and or conservative leaders to realize that when they utilize climate change and denying climate change in a tactical way to get elected, that that actually does have an impact on the legislation that they're able and or willing to pass. And so, you know, it's interesting to see at the end of 2020, Trump's about to go out of office and there's this bill on the table and you do get Republicans and Democrats who are like, all right, let's throw a bunch of climate stuff in this because this is we got to do something at the 11th hour. I mean, I, I guess I'm just saying, I don't think the climate deniers are real. Like, <laughs> I mean, I, at least not politicians. I think that it's solely tactical. Yeah, and I, and I think it's been incredibly damaging beyond just climate and just the public's willingness to accept science and trust in science, right? And we see that in COVID and it's deeply worrisome to me. Let's take a break. And when we come back, Betsy will put some folks on the bench. listen to the podcast and you know how we do at the end of every episode we have a little (laughs) altar call and we got to put people on the mourners bench who need to do better in their lives and i'm curious if uh, to wrap your time up there's anyone that you would like to place on the mourners bench yeah i don't know on one side of me i'd like to put us all on the bench right and encourage all of us to to rethink our values but as i've talked about you know that's not going to get us to where we need and and many folks are on the being impacted side of climate change and not on the causing climate change side so you know thinking systemically probably the exxon bp shell folks the top five fossil fuel companies i may toss on jeff bezos amazon accumulation of wealth um he's started a climate initiative i think he could be doing and should be doing a lot more and if we're gonna really think systemically uh, you know i'd go ahead and put mitch mcconnell and and inhofe and those of our elected officials who are taking money from climate denying organizations and not listening to the public or not at least been you know maybe listening but not acting upon the wishes of the public it's you know it's it's easy to put trump on there but you know it's kind of done i also think the constitution needs to go on there oh say more oh <laughs> she don't put the constitution on the bench <laughs> We have, and it's only going to get worse, uh, some real structural issues in our in our election system that's not going to make it any easier to make these systemic changes that are needed in terms of racial equity, in terms of climate change, in terms of any of it. And whether that's the Electoral College, whether that's Article 1, Section 3, the U.S. Senate, two Senates for each state, which privileges the white vote, Wyoming and other states, 
which, you know, where you have heavily impacted folks on the coast, California, who have much less representation. So maybe the Constitution. I don't know. I'm with if we're, it. If we're, if we're, we're going to think big picture, that's a full bench. I don't know if there's space for all that. We keep building new benches because, I mean, some of these people have already been on there, but the Constitution is going to have to like sit next to the Grim Reaper or something now. Because <laughs> we need like a mourner's museum for all these. Betsy, we are so glad that you have been with us, that you have shared about your work and about the folks who are doing great things with climate change and with fixing the environment, if we can do that. We also think you have got this mourner's bench down. We have to build a whole new wing for your people on the bench, but we are going to definitely do that. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Awesome to see you all. That's a wrap on today's episode of The Mourner's Bench. Thank you so much for listening and thank you to Betsy Albright one more time for being the first listener for a listener view. If you're interested in joining The Mourner's Bench cast for a listener view, send an email to what's up at thefeolab.com. Let us know the topic that you want to discuss and let us know your availability. We'd love to connect with you. If you're liking what you're hearing, go ahead and hit that subscribe button. You know what to do. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, go ahead and rate and review. Only 16 of y'all have done it so far. We need a few more saints to come on through. Come on now. We're going to put you on the bench if you don't. It's real easy. It's right there in the app. Come on. Get off of Instagram. For real now. We'll be back next Tuesday. Take it easy. Peace.